0: Sometimes God calls us to go across the street, sometimes uh, on the other side of the of the world, the planet. Listen, we're glad that you are here today to worship God, to study uh, His Word. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn with me to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, uh, Revelation chapter 20. We're going to finish chapter 20 today. It's only taken us two years, but we are almost finished uh, with chapter 20, so we are uh, on our way through the apocalypse, through chapters uh, 1 through 22. And as I begin this message today, let, let me just say a couple of words to you. First of all, guest, again, God bless you. Thank you for being here today. Uh, we welcome you. We're glad that you have come. Uh, we pray that you feel very welcome here and that God's people reach out to you and that uh, the Word of God is proclaimed in a way that you can understand, that you can appreciate, and that you can see your life change through the power uh, of, God's, of God's Word. And so, um, again, just want to welcome you here and church family. I, uh, I don't know. I was just thinking about this message uh, yesterday. Well, it was a couple of days ago. I was uh, going over the sermon again, and and I was just thinking about how how that annoys me when it does that. But um, but I was I was just thinking about how, you know, I, I love to preach God's word, and and I really do appreciate you listening to God's word. Uh, The more I am in ministry, the more I am convinced that Great Hills Baptist Church is an ecclesiastical anomaly, Uh, that we're very much uh, different than uh, probably 90-plus percent of the churches in America today because we still uh, teach through the Bible. We still teach through… verses and chapters and even entire books. And so, uh, I am convinced that the greatest thing I can do for you is to uh, live a life of holiness and to prepare a message that will encourage you and challenge you uh, in your walk with God. And I just celebrate today, I celebrate all the good things that God is doing uh, in your life and in the life of our church. And so, let me just uh, begin this message today. uh, Those words. Am I doing something wrong, Terry? Oh, goodness. Everything looks right. Okay, let's go with that. Go with this. Testing. One, two, three. You notice I asked Terry if I was doing everything right. I didn't ask my wife if I was doing everything right. (laughs) Because Terry might say, yeah, you're doing great. My wife would really tell me like it is. So. Okay, where, <laughs> where was I? Um, oh, I'm preaching on hell today. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah, so somebody asked me on the hallway. They, they were so kind, and they said, listen, we thank you for, uh, for preaching the Bible. I said, thank you for listening. And then I went up to the coffee shop, and they said, Brother Danny, what is going on today? Everything's just kind of breaking loose on us. I had a hard time getting to church today. And people were like, yeah, it's just hard. I said, it may be because of the subject. Uh, that I'm preaching on, because today I'm going to share a message with you on the great white throne judgment of God. It is a passage of Scripture that is very ominous. It's very riveting. One, one writer I read this week said it is the most difficult, troubling, hard passage of Scripture in all the Word of God, because it brings us face-to-face face with our, our sinfulness, and it brings us face-to-face face with a holy, awesome, just, pure, righteous God, And so it is the great white throne judgment. Let me me begin reading in Revelation chapter 20, and it starts there in verse 11 when it says, then I saw a megon, a megon, and the Greek was just, just large, prodigious, and not this little minuscule, smaller throne, but it is a massive, huge throne, a great white thronos. And we transliterate that word from Greek right into English. It is our word throne. In Greek, it meant a place of judgment. This is a place of judgment, a great white throne, and Him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. Second Peter says the heavens and the earth as we know it literally dissolve at this moment. And there you are, and there God is, and there was found no place for them. And I saw, John said, I saw the dead, small and great. Standing before God. You said, that's contradiction. How can dead be standing? Well, they are they're spiritually dead, but they're very much alive. Uh, they have been reunited with their eternal resurrection body. Their souls, their spirits have come together to this everlasting body, and they are standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged. Each one, now notice this, every single person appearing before the great white throne judgment of God will be accurately, systematically judged according to his or her works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. And this is the second death. And to me, the most ominous, perhaps the most difficult passage in all the Bible. Difficult, not because it's not that I don't understand it, it's because I do understand it. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So Father, we just humble ourselves before you today. Lord, recognizing that we need you, Lord, we need your grace, we need your wisdom to understand what we're about to read, and then, Lord, not only to understand it, but to, to allow it to really penetrate our hearts so that it, that it changes us. And God, I pray for those within the sound of my voice that will one day appear at that throne. That God, they have, no, they have no hope. They have no relationship with you. I pray, God, that that changes today and that, Lord, before this hour is over, that they will say, yes, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me. Wash me clean. And Lord, for the rest of us who will not appear that day, God, those of us that know you and and are serving you, I just pray that you'd motivate us, encourage us. Help us, Lord, not to become weary while we're doing good, but help us to be faithful, Lord. Help us to be bold, and help us to give you our, our very best, oh God, until you take us home. Lord, we love you. We trust you. We need you. And we're asking you, God, to speak to us and to challenge us, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The, the statistics, the data that I came across this week, it's a little bit dated. I, it's the most pertinent that I could find in my study, but Newsweek magazine a few years ago did a poll, and they surveyed Americans about what they believed about the book of Revelation. I thought this was really interesting, since we're studying Revelation, and we have been for the last almost two years, Newsweek magazine said, here is our finding. This is what we found out when we polled Americans about what they thought about the grand apocalypse, the end book of all books. Thirty-six percent believe that the book of Revelations contains some true prophecy. Forty-seven percent of Americans say it's only a metaphor, a simile, it's just one big grand analogy. You ought not take it that seriously. One half of Americans polled believe that. Next, fifty-five percent believe that they are the faithful And they will be taken up in the rapture when Jesus Christ calls his church out of planet earth. 55%, over one half, believe that they will be raptured and taken out of this world. 74% of Americans believe that the devil exists. I don't know what the other, what is it, 20 plus percent are smoking. I mean, all you got to do is open your eyes and see that there is a calculated, fundamental, very powerful presence of evil, very conspicuous evil in this world. But only 74% of Americans believe that the devil exists. And 17%, this is interesting, 17% of Americans believe that the end of the world will occur in their lifetime. 17%. Uh, The pollster, the Christian research man, George Barna, he added his two cents to this doctrine of heaven and hell, and, and he asks the questions of Americans, what do you think about heaven? What do you think about hell? Fifty-five percent of Americans believe that if you only live a good life, irregardless, regardless of what Jesus taught, whether he believed or whether you believe that there's only one way to God, and that is through Christ, dismiss that because the truth is, according to these people, polled, said 55 percent. Believe that if you do good, if if you know in the grand scale of things, if your good can only outweigh your negative or your evil, then God is somehow obligated to say, "Come on in, come on into heaven, because you made it by the hair of your chinny chin chin." Man, you 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 outweighed the bad. Come on in, one ha- Now that's totally erroneous. It's totally fallacious. Would you study the Word of God? But 55% of Americans believe that. What about hell? Oh, this is probably not going to surprise you. 30% believe in hell. 31% of Americans believe that there is an actual uh, geospatial place, geographical place in time, in eternity called hell, a place of everlasting torment. 31% of Americans believe it. 37%, almost 4 in 10, say, Hell is is really not a place, but it represents a state of permanent separation from God. And then 19% believe that that when you use the term hell, it's a symbolic term, not referring to a physical place, uh, 19%, two out of every ten Americans. Well, what does the Bible say? That is a loaded question, because when you ask what does the Bible say? We, we live in such a biblically illiterate culture, and, and when I say culture, I'm not talking about the outside culture, I'm talking about the ecclesiastical, ecclesiological culture in America. We are by and far, we have taken our, our, our theological brains and our Bibles and we have jettisoned them so we really, in honesty, we don't know what the Bible says. Because we no longer read the Bible, and we sure no longer preach the Word of God in the pulpits in America. You know what I'm telling people today? When I call people and prospect Great Hills Baptist, I call them and I say, would you please participate in a grand experiment in Austin, Texas? Would you dare join my church, which is such an anomaly? We are so strange. We are so different, not only in Austin, but all over America, because we still teach and believe the Bible, and that's what I'm challenging people to do today. I'm calling them on the phone and say, would you dare take the grand plunge and experiment and join my church? That's what I'm asking. What does the Bible say? The Bible says there's coming a day. There's coming a day of everlasting joy and bliss in heaven with God, and an everlasting day of doom and destruction and hell below. God is there with His angels, with His saints, and Satan is below with his demons and those who follow Him, and you're going to one place or the other. And then here John is, closing out this book, near the end says, here's this great white throne. The doctrine of eternal punishment is probably the most despised doctrine in the Bible. People just don't want to believe it. They, they just do not want to believe that there is an eternal hell where there's a very good possibility that they would spin it. it. To me, it's kind of like the law of gravity. I can defy it to my own detriment. I can get on top of this building. See, I know what Newton, I know what all these people think about the apple falling. To, I'm telling you, it just doesn't apply to me. I'm going to get to the top of this building, I'm going to run, and I'm going to jump off, and I'm going to defy, and I'm going to die. I'm just going to go right off this building, and I'm going to die. And so we, we treat the Bible, we treat heaven and hell like the law of gravity, as if we were going to defy it, but you can't defy it. It's written within the very code of the Word of God, and really it's embedded upon eternality in our hearts. We know deep down that it has to be true, but we just don't want to accept it or to embrace it. I'm not here today to try to manipulate you or trying to scare you, uh, you know, into heaven, but one pastor I read said this, Pastor Adrian Rogers says, I would rather frighten you into heaven than lull you into hell. It may not be the... (laughs) the best of motivations, but it it might work for some of you to hear and to see that God is serious. And and this thing called life, it really does make a difference how you live this life because it determines where you will spend your afterlife. So a, a couple things I want you to notice from the text with me today. First of all, is this is an awesome scene. An awesome scene. Verse 11, we read where John says, there's a great white throne, And I just want to go ahead and tell you something that you may already know. But if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you are not going to be there. You're, you're You're not going to be there. This is only for those who reject Jesus Christ, who deny God, His very existence, who say, I don't believe it, I don't care what you say, I don't care what. By the way, Jesus. For every word He said about heaven, He said three words about hell. Did y'all know that? For every word Jesus spoke about heaven, He gave three corresponding words about hell. And so here we are at this great white throne, and if you don't know Christ, you will appear there. You will be judged according to your works, and here's what you're going to do. You're going to go in pompous and arrogant and think, it doesn't apply to me. But then God says, but look at your dastardly deeds. Look at all the things you thought. Look at all the things you did. Look at all the things you committed. And so you're you're going to bow and you're going to go, oh my word, God, you were right after all. You were just and pure. I have nobody to blame but myself. Now listen, as Christians, we're going to be judged, but it's going to be totally different. We're going to appear what is called the Bema seat of judgment. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, read the the latter part of that chapter. It describes how we, as as children of God, followers of Christ, we will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, not for our salvation to be determined, but for our rewards to be given. For our rewards to be given to us. The, The Bible says that we will be judged, But it will be a totally different judgment than what you see here in Revelation chapter 20. It says that it's a white throne. I wonder why it's white. Unstained, unsullied, pristine, pure as a driven snow, radiant white, because it connotes the idea of God's purity and God's holiness. The earth and the heaven flee before the face of Him who sits on the throne. Who is that? But well, the Bible tells us in Revelation 22:1 1, that the Father and the Son share the same throne. So, in some amazing way, and it's going to be awesome to finally see it and to realize how all this Trinitarian doctrine works out. And there we are in heaven, and, and the Father and the Son, they occupy this throne. But watch this. The Father does not judge. He has committed all the judgment to the Son. In John, chapter 5, verse 22, it says, God gives all judgment to the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And John says, for as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority, exousian, the power, the authority to execute judgment also, because He is the Son of Man. Maybe you're still a little bit skeptical about this judgment scene. Well, let me read Acts 10, 42. It says this, and He commanded us to preach to the people. And to testify that it is God, it is He who has ordained, He was ordained by God to judge the living and the dead. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, was ordained by the Father to judge the living and the dead. Acts 17, 31 says, because Jesus Christ, He has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness, and here's how God's going to judge the world, by the man whom He has ordained. Now watch this. God has given assurance to everybody by raising Him from the dead. Let me translate it this way. Because Jesus arose from the dead is infallible living proof that every one of you is going to be raised from the dead and you will be judged. You will stand before God, even, either as a saved Christian born again, and you're, you're, you're standing to receive your rewards, or you're condemned to a devil's hell. It is an awesome, sobering scene. The Bible says that earth and heaven will flee away. 2 Peter chapter 3 says that they are literally dissolved, and there's no place to hide. There's, there's no Adam and Eve in the garden trying to hide behind the, the bush or behind the tree. and, and there's, there's nothing. It, it's, it's just you and God. It, it's your standing there before God, and there's nobody there but you. And you alone, your mother's not there, your grandmother's not there, your praying spouse is not there, your children not there, your pastor's not there. It's just you and God before this awesome judgment seat of God. Wow. And gets it's chill bumps on me. It makes me go, wow, Lord, this is absolutely astonishing. This, this is an amazing thing. And, and you know what? We might be tempted to say it's unfair, but it's not unfair because He told us. He told us. One writer says this, he says, we will stand there, no place to hide. Jesus' voice in Revelation 115 is described as the sound of cascading waters. Can you imagine talking back to Niagara Falls? Judgment Day will be a fearful setting, end of quote. Number two, it'll be accurate. There will, be no, there will be no remonstrance, no debating. It will be a very accurate sentence. In verses 12 and 13, the dead stand before God. God raises them up. Their souls are united with their eternal bodies. Hades and hell sentenced to the lake of fire. One, one person put it like this. He says, you come out of jail to be sent to the penitentiary. All the dead, small and great, from the poor... The homeless beggar, to the rich as Donald Trump, they all must give an account before God. It's what it says in Romans fourteen twelve. So then each of us, we must give account of himself to God. The next verse says Ecclesiastes twelve fourteen, for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether you did good or evil. Let me give you one more. Matthew chapter 12 says, but I say to you that for every idle word you speak you will give account of it on the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. I can't imagine standing before God and all the things that I ever did that were evil. I mean, I think about my pre-Christian days and some of those things that I've I, I involved myself in, and I'm like, wow, I'm sure glad I don't have to give an account for that stuff. I'm so glad that Jesus Christ has cleansed me and forgiven me of all of those sins. You see, there are these books, and these books, it, it contains all of our deeds, and that's why it's such an accurate sentence, because the evidence does not lie. But then there's another book there. Did you notice that? There's what's called the... In verse 12, the, the book of life. The book of life is, is a fascinating book. And there, there are many ideas about what the book of life contains. And let me give you a couple of theories, and you can, you can try to d- figure it out and decipher it. Some people believe that every person ever born, their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. There, there are people that really believe this. In fact, they have some good scriptural evidence in Revelation 3 when it talks about your name being blotted out of the book of life. Some people believe every person's name is written in the Lamb's book of life because it's God's will that everybody come to faith in Jesus Christ. But the moment you die and you have not received Christ as Savior and Lord, your name is taken out of the book of life. Other people believe that in God's sovereign mind and His electing grace and sovereign will, He has the names in there of the people who are going to be saved from all time and eternity because He just knows who will accept Christ, who will not. And so the, the, the names are recorded in the book of life. But the people that are there, their names are not there. I'm telling you, there are sometimes you want to see your name, and there are times... When you do not want to see your name, I remember as a kid growing up, we'd, make, we'd have tryouts. And y'all remember in the old days, I don't think we can do this anymore because it might offend somebody. Amen? We, we, we'd put your name up there on the board, and I'd run up there and go, oh, A, B, C, D, E, F. And I'd go, whew, I made the basketball team. Or while, I, I made that part in the whatever it was I was trying out for. There are times you want to see your name, and there are times you don't want to see your name. Let, let me tell you something. This is a time you want to see your name. You want to make sure that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, for this is for keeps. I want to use a forensic or courtroom analogy and try to, try to illustrate what, what I think is going on here. You'll stand before the bar of God's justice. The prosecuting attorney will be the, the weight of evidence in the books But what's so difficult is there will be no defense attorney. There will be no jury. There will be no parole. There will be no less sentencing. There will just be you and God and all the guilt and all of your shame and all of your sin that you brought with you into eternity. And you stand before the bar of God's justice. The Bible says in verse 13, everybody will be present. Whether you perished at the sea or in the land, whether your body was obliterated, it doesn't matter whether you're cremated, it doesn't matter if your ashes are strewn across the lake or the sea, in somehow, majestic, miraculous time, God's going to bring you back together, your body, you're going to have a resurrected body, you're going to have the same soul, the same spirit, and you appear before God, and then you're judged. Each one of us, each, verse 13 says, very personal. Will be judged. You know, this is such um, such a sobering passage. It I, I just as I study this, as I preach this, I just I feel, I just feel the resistance. I, I feel the offense. I feel with many of you, if you were polled and, and you would say in your heart of hearts, I, I don't know that I really believe this. Kinda of be like me going to a, a cancer doctor, an oncologist, and I feel good. I mean, I, I really do. I feel I feel great. I ran six miles yesterday. Felt good. Listen, I can run a lot better when it's 63 than when it's 103. Amen. I mean, I mean, I run. I feel good. And if 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 I were to go to the oncologist and he say, Well, I've run some tests and I need to tell you something. You you, you know, go ahead and have a seat. Because there's cancer all in your body. And I would want to say, but, but no, you don't understand. I, I'm in good health. I just ran, and, and, and I, there's no cancerous cells in my body. He said, no, you don't understand. And, and he shows me the blood work, and he shows me the x-rays, and, and I have a choice. I can either say, you're right, and I'm wrong, or you're a bona fide idiot. Get out of my face. There's nothing wrong with me. Nothing wrong with me. And I go on and live my life. And a few months later, I die a very painful death of cancer. Why? Because I didn't want to believe it. I think that is a just application for eternity. We don't want to believe this. We don't want to believe that God is some just, awesome, holy God that will hold me accountable for my sins, because if that's true, then I cannot live like I want to live. I have to surrender my will to the God who created me. And if I surrender my will and ask for His forgiveness, He cleanses me, and I go to heaven when I die. But if I don't, I go to hell, and I have no one but to blame but but myself. One writer said, it was John MacArthur, he said, those who refuse to plead guilty in this world, those who refuse to repent in this world and ask God for a pardon based on the substitutionary work of Christ in this world, they're going to face a trial after they die. And on that day, they will be guilty. Matthew 7, 21 and 23 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons, all these wonderful things in your name? And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, let me leave that verse on the screen for just a minute, because that verse scares the ibby jibbies out of everybody. And I don't think that Jesus recorded that to scare the ibby jibbies out of his people. Now here's why. The last two words is the latch key. That's how you unlock the mystery of this verse. And, and it goes like this. If you practice lawlessness, if you live a life... By and large, a life of pride and egotism, a life of selfishness, a life of of lying, a life of immorality, and and by and large, the the course of your life is described that way, then you don't know God. You don't have a relationship with Him, and that's what He's saying. But I'm so grateful to God that I don't practice those things. I used to practice those things, but something happened to me. Jesus Christ came into my life. He saved me. He changed me, and, and my name is recorded in his book. So it's an, it's an accurate sentence. And the thing that's so amazing about it is we're not going to be able to debate it because the, the preponderance of evidence will be against us and we will have nobody to blame but ourselves. And the last thing is, is what I've called this awful second death. What is the second death? The second death is the lake of fire. It says in verse 14, death, the grave, Hades, these are all temporary places. Of punishment for the dead, because one day they are cast into the lake of fire. One writer says the inmates, currently suffering in their spirits only, will be united with specially designed resurrection bodies, and they will be cast in eternal hell. Matthew ten twenty-eight says, do not fear the person who kills the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear God, who is able to destroy both your soul and your body. In hell. Uh, the most descriptive Greek word to describe the lake of fire is this word called Gehenna. Uh, Gehenna is mentioned many times in scripture, such as Matthew 10 28, Matthew 5 22, 29 through 30. It's mentioned in Luke 12 5. Gehenna is a place in Jerusalem, located in the southwestern part of Jerusalem in biblical times, in the Old Testament. It was when those wayward Israelites would bring their children and sacrifice them and burn them in Gehenna to Molech and to the other gods, the Ammonite gods. Chemosh, Molech, Baal. And they would, they would refuse God, and they would offer sacrifices, and they would burn them there in Gehenna. In the New Testament, it was a trash heap, a dump. It's where you took your trash, and, and it smoldered, and it burned perpetually ongoingly it burned because it was continually being fed by the trash of Palestine or the trash of of Israel. That's interesting because that is the word that Jesus often used when he connotes this ideal of hell. People say, well, hell, what is it going to be a, a burning place? Is it is Billy Graham ride That it's just going to be a place of, of just separation and, and darkness, and that's the main thing, and it's not so much burning as it is just night. It, uh, I, don't, I don't know what it is. Glory to God. I'm just not going there. I, I don't know what it looks like, what it smells like, what it feels like, but for the grace of God, I'm telling you, I would split hell wide open. You know why? Because I was a sinner, and I liked my sin, and I liked my arrogance, and I liked the way I was living my life, but oh, glory to God, He had mercy on me. He came down to me and He said, you reprobate, you're going to split hell wide open. You need Jesus, and you need Christ in your life. And finally, it's just like the light came on, and I said, okay, Lord, I am sorry. Please forgive me. Ma'am, thank you ma'am he came right into my heart and he forgave me and he saved me and he cleansed me and god can do the very same thing for you the only thing god cannot do is save an arrogant soul he just can't some of you got your legs crossed you got your arms this you got your spirit bowed up and you're just like i don't i don't know about all this Jesus is either lying or he's telling the truth. And if he's lying, there is no hell. But if he's telling the truth, it's, it's real. Pastor David Jeremiah said this. He said, sometimes I wonder if the reason God does not allow believers to be present at the great white throne judgment is because we would not be able to bear the looks of unsaved friends or relatives when they ask, in heaven's name, why didn't you tell me? Why did you never tell me? And Dr. Jeremiah says, whether they choose Jesus, that's not, that's not your responsibility. That's their responsibility. But whether they have the choice may be your responsibility. Beth Moore asks the question, what did this vision have on the Apostle John? For John to see souls cascading into the lake of fire, what what did that do to John? Perhaps it gave him even more compassion. Maybe it gave him even more urgency to record this. I know what it does to me. It changes me. It makes me a better Christian. It makes me want to tell people more. It makes me want to pray more. It makes me want to serve God more. You know, I was just, this morning as I was, basically I was just trying to get the nerve up to do this. Can I just be real with y'all for a minute? I was trying to get the nerve up to preach this sermon. So I don't know what y'all do when you preach to about a thousand people on hell. I don't know how y'all do it, but I just started reading famous preachers who still believed it, like Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And I was reading his sermon this morning at 10 o'clock, just trying to get the nerve, the energy. And I was reminded of, of a great preacher of yesteryear. His name was Jonathan Edwards. And he preached sinners in the hands of an angry God. And colonial America was just taken by revival. And scores of people... And then this is in the 1740s. Scores of people came to faith in Christ, and many historians, many scholars believe that was the galvanizing effect, to catapult those nascent, struggling colonies into a bona fide nation, which enabled them to endure the Revolutionary War. Many people believe that. Jonathan Edwards, Perry Miller of Harvard University says, was the greatest mind America ever produced. Now, there were some prodigious great minds. Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson were just two. Samuel Adams and Hancock. I mean, you you think about the names, the men, the great intellects. And Perry Miller of Harvard said none was greater than Jonathan Edwards, the preacher in Massachusetts. Jonathan Edwards pastored his church for 17 years until they fired him. I can't imagine. Well, yes, I can. It it just just happens. (laughs) Uh, He took a stand. He, He took a stand for regenerate church membership. He said, if you want to join my congregational church, you have to be born again. There's no halfway members, and and, and so they fired him. So he left, and he became a missionary to the Native American Indian people. And then he got a call from Princeton University, and they said, we would like for you to be our president. So he became the president of the College of New Jersey, which today is Princeton. By the way, In many generations ago, the the greater minds and the great moral authorities in America were the pastors. And we have totally jettisoned that. We have totally jettisoned that. Because we're too freaking cool. We won't preach the hard word of God. Because we got to be cool, we got to pack you in the pew so you can pay our salaries so we can drive our big cars and live the kind of life we want. And so how dare I tell you about hell? How dare I might offend you and you may not give? And so that's why I call us the great anomaly. If God tarries and we continue to do this, will Great Hills Baptist Church be viable? Will we be sustainable? Will we even make it? I don't know. I really don't know. But I'm trusting God that if we don't make it, and if I don't make it and, and we just close it up, then at least I can stand before God and say, God, I know I was a wimpy dude at times, but God, I gave you my best, and, and here I am, and I have no regrets. If you don't believe me, go visit a church. Go, go listen to pastors preach today. There are very, very few, and there are so many times... Where I say, why don't I just get on the homiletical bandwagon and quit doing what I'm doing? And I just want you all to know before God, that is a very valid temptation to me at this time in my life. It is. It's very valid. How else are we going to make it? (laughs) Who's going to come? Who's going to come listen to the rest of Revelation? Who wants to hear me talk about heaven and and hell? And and so I think in my weaker moments, in Great Hills, I don't know what y'all think about me, but if there's any good that comes out of me, you need to go thank my wife, because she's the one that says, don't you dare quit. I'll slap you upside the head if you ever quit. And so it's the Holy Spirit and my wife. I'm grateful to God for people who went before me, who stood tall and stood strong on the Scriptures. But Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon, and it was called, The Justice of God in the Damnation of Sinners. Listen to that. God is just in His condemnation of sinners. Charles Darwin, in 1859, published the landslide, landmark book of all books in biological evolution, The Origin of Species. And they're not too far removed, 1740, 1850. We're evolving as a a nation. Of course, England is ahead of us. and, And Charles Darwin, his dad wanted him to be a pastor. And Charles Darwin is studying this, and he's thinking through this very deep subject of heaven and hell. And he had an eureka moment, and Charles Darwin said, poppycock, it's not true. Hell does not exist. And here's how I, Charles Darwin, God's gift to biology, here's how I know that hell is not real. Quote, if hell is real... My brother's in hell, and all of my best friends are in hell. Therefore, it does not exist. What great logic, what great reasoning skills and syllogism. If I don't like it, it does not exist. And Gertrude Himmelfarb in her biography of Charles Darwin said this, there may be more persuasive theological reasons to reject hell Or to reject God. But there has never been a more persuasive, emotional reason for Charles Darwin than to reject God and to reject the afterlife, reject it all based upon this damnable, that's what he called it, the damnable doctrine of eternal hell. Well, Folks, I still believe it. I still, to my dying day, I hope that I'll continue to be strong and preach it and encourage people and warn people. Some of you are looking at me like, well, help me, brother. Talk to me. You about scared hell out of me. What what is what's going on? How do, I, how do I get out of this? How do I get there? Here's what you do: listen to me carefully. This is very important. Don't miss what I'm about to say. You humble your recalcitrant, proud heart before God, and you say, God, I am a sinner. Please forgive me. I give you my life. Boom. That's what happens. And when you do that. There's this divine exchange. God takes your sin and he goes, he throws it into the depths of the sea and and he remembers it no more. And so when you die and 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 you go before God and there is no sin in your life because Jesus Christ has cleansed you and you go into heaven, hallelujah. But if you die and you never did this, You never said, Lord, I am sorry. You appear before God. God, he plasters it in all these books, and he says, do you remember that? Yes, I did. Oh, I I thought you forgot about that. Whoa, man. Do you remember this, and this, and this, and this, and this? And you go, oh, God, I'm so sorry. Would you forgive me? He says, no, it's too late. You had your chance. You have your chance today. Would you stand before God today and say, I am sorry. Lord, I believe come down this aisle, take one of these pastors by the hand and say, I am giving my hand to you, but I'm giving my heart to Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, I am, I'm ready to serve Him and live for Him. And I'm ready to abandon those lawless deeds. Those you who practice lawlessness, that's me. I don't want to do that anymore. I'm giving my life to Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can break this pornography. He's the only one that can break this addiction. He's the only one that can break my alcoholism. He's the only one that can break my my mind, the things that I I think. Here's something the Holy Spirit showed me, and this is going to make some of you fighting mad, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you. You would rather look at naked women than go to heaven. You would. You would rather pull it up on your phone and be absorbed in that than to say, Jesus, break this addiction and help me get over this. So I'm going to encourage you. I'm begging you. Say, God, forgive me. Have mercy on me. And Jesus Christ comes into my life. Well, what does that mean, Dan? I, I become a Christian. Does that mean I'm never tempted? Does that mean I, I never look at pornography again? No, it doesn't. It means you're forgiven and you're cleansed, but you may slip up. And here's what happens. You slip up and you go, man, that's wrong. <laughs> Lord, I'm sorry, and you cannot continue habitually doing what you used to do when Jesus is in your heart. So let me pray for you, invite you to be saved, and then we're, we're done. Father, thank you for your word. I do ask you, Lord, to save people, God, change people's hearts, change their minds. God, I pray that there would be a moment in this very room, that there would be a divine encounter that many would say yes to you, Lord, I'm begging them, God, I'm begging them, I'm begging you to save them. Lord, for those of us that know you, God, have mercy on us. Forgive us where we fall short. Help us, Lord, to walk closer to you and and, and be clean and be pure in our thoughts. Lord, would you bless this church? God, I'm, I'm calling out people, Lord, that want to be a part of something absolutely different, to be a part of a church that still preaches the Bible, that still wants to say the hard things, and still wants to be as close to God as we possibly can by honoring His Word. And Lord, I'm praying that you would send people this way, that, God, we would be sustainable. God, we would make it in Austin, Texas, and we would be viable, and we would, Lord, do great things for the kingdom of God. Lord, I pray you'd draw people to yourself. I pray, God, that you'd bring people to our new members class. Even today, people would say... I need to get off the fence, and I I need to be a part because God is calling me to this. So, Lord, we ask you to bless our invitation. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? God bless you as you stand, as you listen. Listen to the Holy Spirit of God as he speaks to you. We invite you to come do business with the Lord. Terry and Jana, y'all lead us. God bless you as you come.